Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Joel Selvin, and he published in April 2021 a book titled Hollywood Eden, Electric Guitars, Fast Cars, and the Myth of the California Paradise. And his website is joelselvin.com, all one word, J-O-E-L-S-E-L-V-I-N.com. And Mr. Selvin is the author of 19 books. He had a long-running weekly column in the San Francisco Chronicle from 1972 to 2009. He's a music critic and author. He's also taught classes at San Francisco State Mills College in uh, Oakland and at the University of California, Berkeley, a journalism colloquium. And some of his titles, which I've listed here, his first one is Summer of Love, the inside story of LSD, rock and roll, free love, and high times in the wild, August 1st, uh, 1994. He also published in 2011, read My Uncensored Life in Rock, which he co-wrote with Sammy Hagar, which hit the number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Also, Peppermint Twist, The Mob, The Music, and The Most Famous Dance Club of the 60s, published 2012. Another is Here Comes the Night, The Dark Soul of Burt Burns and the Dirty Business of Rhythm and Blues, 2014. Another is Altamont, The Rolling Stones, Hell's Angels, and the Inside Story of Rock's Darkest Day. One of the publications is 2016 and then... Also, fairly well, the final chapter of The Grateful Dead's Long Strange Trip 2018. But again, we're going to talk about his most recent publication, which is Hollywood Eden. So, Joel Selvin, are you there? William, thanks awesome. for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not know your background, can you talk? I mean, you have a long uh, story career as a music critic. Can you talk about what you learned as a music critic and what led you to write this book, Hollywood Eden? What I learned as a music critic, good God, I wouldn't know where to begin with a question like that. You know, I started writing for the Chronicle when I was like 20 years old. And, you know, I, I kind of rode the whole daily newspaper thing to the beach. Um, and, uh, you know, I met a thousand, two thousand people and, and, and wrote 5,000 stories and, uh, you know, lived to tell. So the last 12 years since I left the paper, I've been writing all these books and, and Hollywood Eden was something that had been sitting on my on my desk for a number of years. Uh, it, it, it's it's spark. It's genesis comes from somebody showing me the 1958 high school yearbook from University High in West Los Angeles. And when I realized that Jan and Dean, Nancy Sinatra Bruce Johnston of the Beach Boys, drummer Sandy Nelson, record producer Kim Fowley, and even Gidget had all gone to high school together. I, I saw the, the beginnings of something, the locus of, of, of a story, the, the, the portal of entry to something. And then when I saw that in one three-month period in 1966, all these story arcs dropped to earth, you know, and uh, the Beach Boys put out Pet Sounds. Jan Barry of Jan and Dean has his car crash. Nancy Sinatra has Boots Are Made for Walking. All these things just came tumbling down to earth in an eight-year period. I realized I could see from the beginning to the end of a story. It took about six years to uh, pull the whole thing together and and and. and you know, get the book done and, and, and out in the, in the world. It really is incredible that all that time uh, you can distill all of those characters down to one school in Santa Monica or what is it? West LA. 
that they all started there really before. And I think you make the point in your book that there really wasn't a music industry to be talked about in LA at the time. So these people were really the builders, the foundations for everything that came in the future. Can you talk about some of these characters? Maybe this generation, me, some of the names I'm not familiar with or became familiar through your book. Can you talk about these characters and what their style was as it uh, went through from the 50s to the 60s? So much of this book is about time and place. It's about a Los Angeles before freeways. It's about a Los Angeles before jet travel, when California was a very remote part of the United States and uh, had a kind of illusory um, uh, image in the rest of the country's eyes. Um, I, I peg it to the opening of Disneyland in 1955 in many respects, because uh, all the children across the country that watch that weekly TV show, Walt Disney Presents, uh, always one of the most popular TV shows of the week. Uh, they saw this amusement park that was beyond all amusement parks. It was something of dreams. It could only be in California as they knew California. So all that's this time and place thing. And these people that we're talking about, uh, they, they come from highly privileged backgrounds. A lot of them are in show business backgrounds. A lot of them are uh, upper class, aristocratic living in, in just the most beautiful part of Los Angeles, West L.A., Bel Air Hills, uh, 10 minutes from the beach. I mean, imagine being able to just get in your car with your buddies and go to the beach after school. That's what these people had. They're all California natives. You know, eventually California was really in, in incredibly populated and, and, and initiated and moved and, and all that by, by people who came here from elsewhere thinking that, they wanted to be in what they thought was California. So they helped make California be that. But these people that I'm talking about, they lived in that California. And it was real for a moment. It was this Gidget movie. Uh, and out of that, because these people knew no limits, because they had no boundaries, because they had this incredible prosperity and this great privilege, they, they, they could live a life of their own dreams. And in 1958, one of the great things to dream was making rock and roll records. So that's what Jan Barry's dream was. And by the time he was out of high school, he was already in the top 10. That first summer after high school, he was out there touring around, playing, you know, American Bandstand and all that. Across town at Fairfax High, there was another kid that dreamed of being a rock and roll uh, musician. And he had a number one record called To Know Him Is To Love Him by the Teddy Bears. That was his vocal group. And, and that's Phil Spector. He went on to change the whole way rock and roll was sounded. So th this was like a time and place book. And these people had opportunities that don't exist any other time and place. And that's sort of the, the drama that spills out as, as these high school kids wander off campus to into the world of rock and roll, which they are creating as they go along. Right, it really is remarkable. So the music at that time in LA is the lesser child you note of the film industry. So there's a just a blank slate for all of these people to really build on their skills. And uh, while I was I reading your book, I was actually typing into YouTube to listen to some of these early songs that I hadn't heard Jenny Lee, 
uh, Giannadine. And I just saw how you can see that build up into the 60s to the next generation. Really fascinating stuff. Some of these early Marty Melker who ties into the 60s as well, his son. Um, can you talk about how they actually put the music together and how they sold it? I mean, they really were kind of garage bands, right? It's even more than that. But first of all, let me recommend the Hollywood Eden Spotify playlist. Uh, it's up there for anybody that wants to, uh, to follow it. And it's got pretty much the entire book in a playlist. And you're right. Listening to it, starting with Jenny Lee and ending up with Good Vibrations, you can see this whole music evolve into this incredible art form. When, you're, when the music started in 1958, as you said, there was no real big deal record business. There was Capitol Records, but that was old-fashioned square music. Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole, and they had no interest in rock and roll. They were an establishment. The rock and roll records were made by storefront record companies. You could walk right in and, and sing this, your song to the guy who ran the label, and he'd go, yeah, let's go into the studio and do that. And those were kind of fly-by-night operations. They were selling small records with big holes in the center to teenagers. It was very much sort of under the radar of the, of, of the record business, of the show business, of the mainstream entertainment field. And one of the huge things that made Los Angeles different and, and really enabled all these musicians was a group of studio musicians. And that was a post-World War thing, the studio musician. Usually the New York crowd, for instance, was um, you know ex-big band jazz musicians uh, doing radio orchestras and stuff like that. But these were the scientists of, of, of the, the recording business. And in Los Angeles, uh, Phil Spector, came back to Los Angeles from New York and called his high school friend, Steve Douglas, who had been saxophone player in Dwayne Eddy's band, down, 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 guitar instrumentalist. And he'd been back in town playing a lot of sessions for a year or so. And Spectre needed a session really fast. So Steve called a group of musicians that he'd met, a drummer named Hal Blaine, a guitar player named Tommy Tedesco, a piano player named Al DeLore, this group of musicians came together and they recorded He's a Rebel for Phil Spector as a producer, which would be a number one record for the Crystals, although the Crystals weren't really there that day. There were studio vocalists. Uh, Darlene Love was the actual singer on it. But this group of musicians, this studio musicians, they were not the big band guys. They were rock and roll musicians. Hal Blaine had been with Tommy Sands. He was sort of a junior Elvis. And they came, instead of wearing suits and ties to the session, they showed up in jeans and T-shirts. So these guys were the group of musicians that came to collect around this early rock and roll scene. They've come to be known as the Wrecking Crew. But they were the studio musicians that enabled Jan and Dean, um, Beach Boys, Johnny Rivers, uh, they played Elvis records. They played all the records that were going to be made in Los Angeles. These were the guys. And, you know, it includes guitarist Glenn Campbell, pianist Leon Russell, very high caliber uh, of musical talent, but young and not beholden to the old ways. I mean, you go to a, a, a rock and roll session in New York, and they'd have these guys in suits and ties that played jazz and, and looked down their nose at rock and roll, like, you know, but out in Los Angeles, 
They love this music. They were of that generation. And so that's one of the things that really began to seed this West Coast pop scene in Los Angeles. And one of the other interesting aspects in your book, it's not just the musicians, the musicians but you see the businessmen behind that also cre helping create or gestate this music. Uh, you mentioned names like Adler, Albert. Um, can you talk about some of these the business competition and the names that really kind of help forward this music? In New York, there's these huge office buildings that have been filled with uh, music business companies for, you know, 50 years or more. And there was a hierarchy and there were old time music publishers and a lot of people scuffling up the ladder of success. Out in Los Angeles, that didn't really exist. Most of the music business was associated with the, with the movie business. So a young guy like Lou Adler, who fell in as a songwriter with Sam Cooke, could branch out and, you know, put up a shingle and bingo. He was a manager. He was a record producer. He put out records on his own labels. He represented in Los Angeles East Coast publishing firm. And it was like operating on the edge of the world to be out there. But he was in there by himself. And Adler was a Adler was a brilliant, uh, uh, visionary kind of guy, and he was partners writing uh, songs with Herb Alpert, and they started out producing and managing Jan and Dean together. At early on in that point, they came to a parting of the ways, and Herb Alpert went off to make his unique and incredibly successful music with Herb Alpert's Tijuana Brass, forming his own label. A&M Records, which went on to become one of the giant record labels of the West Coast. Adler, he went on to manage Johnny Rivers and uh, Mamas and Papas and produce their records. He produced the Monterey Pop Festival. He would be the record producer responsible for breaking Carole King with the biggest selling record of all time, Tapestry. He discovered Cheech and Chong. He produced the Rocky Horror Show. He sat center court at the Lakers game next to Jack Nicholson every night for years. Uh, truly one of the, the, the guiding lights of the entertainment business in Los Angeles. And all this coming from this tiny little village of Hollywood in the late 50s. Right. It really is incredible. Like he just formulated it. He was a giant, really a titan. Uh, A&M, yeah, A&M Records became just enormous too. Um, I so saw him last week sitting behind home plate at the Dodgers games wearing a white beret. Wow, that's incredible. He's 60 year career. I mean, that when well, it goes back to your theme, these guys were all teenagers, early 20s. Like you said in your book, he was seasoned at 24, like when he started, which uh, these days is pretty young. Um, yeah, so, and then it, it kind of created that you talk about this ethos or being in Southern California. You mentioned you have a statement from Ferling Getty, who sadly passed away in the last couple of years. Uh, Southern California, where the American dream came too true. So you saw, like you talked about the beach there, this theme that the the Beach Boys and or Jan and Dean, they grew, they had this environment of surf music, right? Can you talk more about that? Well, they grew up outside the beach. Jan and Dean were actual surfers. I mean, Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, he, I mean, he didn't surf, he didn't swim. Uh, but Jan and Dean were guys that you know went to the beach every day, and 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 Dean had a, a a pickup truck, a thirty-two Ford that he threw surfboards in the back. They were very much 
the, the uh, part of that world that Gidget portrayed so, uh, you know, fancifully. But it was a real thing for the kids at University High. The surf music idea was a wrinkle that uh, sort of comes out of the South Bay with instrumental bands, mostly Dick Dale and the Deltones, but there were others that did some of this stuff. And, and it, it, they, they, they weren't surf music so much as they were playing for surfers. And that's when Brian Wilson transformed that into a lyrical idea. Uh, and the first Beach Boys record, Surfing, is really a, a John and Dean knockoff. It's very much just a take on Baby Talk, <clears throat> their big 1959 hit. And Jan and Dean recognized that the first time they heard that record on the radio. And that was kind of interesting, too. They didn't seem to have the same copyright laws that they have today. So when these early records came out, there were knockoffs of uh, one of the famous, what was it? Is it either Teen Beat or one of these where they're comp competing and putting out knockoffs on, on some of these? Oh, Alley Oop, I think it was, right? Alley Oop. They had cover versions of that. Well, this is the folk process in action. Uh, these things are sort of uh, just beginning to be formed. Ideas are very much just floating around, uh, and it's not a big business. It's not like there's, you know, these people are selling tens of millions of things. It's like I said, it's operating low-key under the radar. And, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, nicking this idea from that guy and, and, and beating this guy to the uh, street with something. Uh, it was all very, uh, you know, of the moment and, and, and really sort of low-rent and cutthroat, and, 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 you know, it was barely a hustle. Uh, it, it certainly wasn't a profession. Right. So, I mean, so you see the, the building from Jan and Dean to the Beach Boys. What did the Beach Boys really do that set them apart from the earlier kind of beach Southern California music? Oh, where to begin with that? It's so amazing. And, and when, you, when you bear down on the Beach Boys story and Brian Wilson, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, Brian really quickly took over running his own sessions, which was an extraordinary thing at the time. And he was in the studio and they finished a mistake-free take. And he said to the engineer, let's do it again. And the engineer said, but Brian, there's no mistakes on that. And Brian said, it didn't feel right. And the engineer said, didn't feel right? That's the level that this artwork was at at that point. They had a mistake-free trick. Why, why would we want to go further? Brian had a vision of something. He loved rock and roll records. He knew that how they felt was everything. And it didn't matter that they had a mistake-free take. And in that moment, he took the whole art form of rock and roll in the recording studio it through a barrier over a border. And he did that for years. I mean, the, uh, the, the, that record, I Get Around, was such an uncanny breakthrough. There was nothing like it. And, and it, it sounded like it on the radio. And his Pet Sounds album, which he orchestrated with all those guys from the Wrecking Crew, uh, it was so advanced beyond what the Beatles were doing. The Beatles wouldn't face an orchestration. They wouldn't face a piano overdub without George Martin, their producer. Brian Wilson was in there up to his eyeballs in the music, making this stuff up as he goes along. And everybody else was listening, borrowing his ideas, and following what he did. Now, how do you explain that? I don't know. You know, it's kind of some kind of native genius. Again, a time and place stuff. Uh, Brian was definitely a special person. 
special in, in, in every sense of that word. And it, it shows in that music. Uh, if he'd never made another record uh, after Good Vibrations, the entire uh, Beach Boys thing would be as uh, complete. He had done his work, he'd done his job, and he had uh, uh, made masterful artistic statements. And he had brought the entire industry from surfing, bomb, bomb, dip, 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 to good vibrations. And that's a long way. It's really incredible. Like some people have put Pet Sounds into the top album of all time, like the top rock album. Some critics have think it's like the greatest piece of art, which is remarkable considering, like you said, time and place, Southern California. And uh, what else happened during that 60s to, to perpetuate this kind of the daylight or the growth of, uh, of Southern California music? Well, you can see this whole thing developing from University High into the uh, uh, as Jan and Dean go through college and the and 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 by the way their parents made them go to school. Rock and roll was not a, a profession; you couldn't count on that. So Jan studied to be a doctor and Dean studied to be an architect at the UCLA and USC respectively. And then they gigged on the weekends and recorded in you know when they could. Uh, but uh, they. Uh, their, their whole artwork was about developing what they did and exceeding. They were the ones who discovered surf music from the Beach Boys. And then that gave them a second wind as a career. Surf City was the first number one record out of Los Angeles, out of this West Coast pop. And that was the first number one surf song. The Beach Boys had had records out before that had been national, but they hadn't been that big a hit. You know, uh, it, it evolved from that through all kinds of influences, not just the success of the records and, and, and the changing in the, the culture around it, but in the shift in Los Angeles as the music industry moved to the West Coast. And, and, and Dick Clark relocated American Bandstand to Los Angeles and, and they shot that movie in December 64, The Tammy Show, which is an incredible time capsule of Motown, British bands, and West Coast surf bands. And they, they shot it in Santa Monica, and they used the Wrecking Crew as the house band. And so that's like a really incredible pivot point where this once like isolated little village of, of, of rock and roll uh, you know, beginnings is now the center of the rock and roll universe. It's incredible. Like it comes really within a decade almost or 15 years. years. And so also Phil Spector is kind of an interesting character, uh, really a genius as well. <laughs> he is Can kind of an interesting character, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about him and his influence upon Hollywood Eden? Well, Hollywood Eden is, is the good Spector, you know, uh, uh, before he really went off the deep end. But he was always a difficult case and and and, and probably – you know, um, mentally unbalanced, you know, from the beginning. Uh, his parents were first cousins. Uh, his father was a suicide victim when he was eight. His mother was very crazy. His sister was even crazier. She was institutionalized. And Phil was moved to Los Angeles from the Bronx in the 10th grade, thrown into uh, Fairfax High, you know, a, a sort of runty, pimply, uh, surly 
kid that didn't have, uh, you know, didn't get the girls, didn't have friends, you know, music was his savior. And yeah, he, he devoted himself to a, a vision of music that led to some of the greatest records of, of the early 60s with the Ronettes and the Crystals and then the greatest record of 1965, which was a huge year for records. And you've lost that love and feeling by the Righteous Brothers. That's when he moves back to Los Angeles and starts to crumble. And the whole final scenes with Phil in Hollywood Eden are around him recording his masterpiece, River Deep Mountain High, with Tina Turner and holding up in his Baroque mansion in, in, in the Hollywood Hills, uh, becoming ever more reclusive. And when River Deep Mountain High fails to be accepted by the public, he kind of like just pulls the curtain shut and goes away. Right. I mean, he was very influential as a producer. I mean, one of the thing about Tina Turner and some of these stories from the 60s is really the influence of kind of uh, African-Americans in 60s music, Cook, Turner, some of these other girl bands. Uh, can you talk about them and, and, and their connection to California? I'd like to. I appreciate you bringing that up because there's a whole underside to Hollywood Eden that isn't in the book. And the fact is that in the 50s, Los Angeles was the scene of a very thriving rhythm and blues scene out of South Central Los Angeles. Modern records, were, uh, the Bahari brothers who'd been making incredibly important black records since they recorded B.B. Uh, King and Howlin' Wolf back in Memphis in the early 50s. Uh, Imperial records had Fats Domino and, and a whole raft of, of, of other sort of, uh, you know, mid-chart R&B records. And there was a, you know, a whole handful of, of small labels putting out these records. When the surf music thing hit and the white rock and roll blew up in Los Angeles, it buried the, the, the rhythm and blues scene of that town. And it took them years to excavate that. Uh, the... Uh, it, it, it was an, a, you know, it was an ascendancy of white culture and the black uh, uh, culture moved to the edges. Sam Cooke, you know, you can see where he came out of the gospel area and he became this kind of anomalous success in the pop field. Uh, the, the, there weren't many people that were able to follow him. Uh, Adler continued to work with Black Axe all his life. He just just now just finished uh, uh, doing an album with um, the singer from the Rolling Stones, uh, "Gimme Shelter," the background singer. Why oh, am right, I? Right, right. Yeah, I don't know her name. Uh, I'm and and she just she lost both her legs in an uh, automobile accident, and Adler took her back into the studio. I'm sorry to not be able to recall her name. It's, it's so this black culture has always been the fountain for white rock music and white pop music. You know, right. and you mentioned that you say that, like, I think they were describing Jan and Dean as two blonde kid or Everly brothers with a black sound. So they were intentionally trying to get that kind of African-American sound. You talk about the dolphin, I think a dolphin record, uh, record label too. So there were activities taking place in South central, at least around that time. Um, and so after what happens after kind of uh, the Beach Boys, I mean, what the next steps in the progression of this mythos? Well, 
so you know there's this whole once upon a time in hollywood uh era of hollywood that um comes when the hippies show up you know and and laurel canyon and manson and and uh crosby stills and nash and Joni mitchell i'm i'm not interested in that at all uh it's it's what i wanted was to tell the story of this innocence and 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 take it to where there's self-knowledge that's a kind of classic literary trope right uh and by the time we get to good vibrations Everybody has the self-knowledge. Jan's crashed his car. Uh, there's this whole thing with the mamas and papas and Jill Gibson. I mean, there's all a lot of, everybody has learned who they are. What happens next after Hollywood Eden is the Monterey Pop Festival. And that was a huge, you know, watershed moment in, in the history of, of, of rock, right then and there. You know, there was an old school that came in that weekend on top Mamas and Papas Association, Johnny Rivers. And then there was a new school that came in that weekend that went out on top. The Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, The Who, Jimi Hendrix. So that was this big watershed moment when the hippies kind of took over the whole music scene. And LSD becomes a stream of the thought and, and action of this stuff. And everything starts to change. It's 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 a, a completely different culture, a completely different time in history. And uh, I wrote about that in my book, Summer of Love, from the San Francisco perspective. Uh, my it's interest in the Los Angeles story ends before the Monterey Pop Festival. Right, but it almost like switches from L.A. to San Francisco. So the influence goes north, and then the drugs change everything. It didn't. It comes out of LA. So you're left with this almost kind of like, <coughs> uh, oh, what I could, like a Motown, but like in LA, something where you can, there's that place and time that's set forever. Would you agree with that? Well, Los Angeles is the, uh, the, the capital of, of show business, right? So there's a tendency for the, the, the things to get industrial down there. Uh, having a hit record being more important than making an artistic statement, for instance, you know, to draw it broadly. And San Francisco has always been sort of a human game preserve. Uh, that's, that's what Robin Williams said. Um, and it's true that the, the, in the 60s, San Francisco was more of a musical laboratory and Los Angeles is more of a musical factory. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't influences going both ways. You know, William, what, what I found interesting in, in, in researching and writing Hollywood Eden was I, I found a lot of parallels between the surfers of the late 50s along the South Bay coast and up to Malibu uh, and the beatniks in San Francisco. You know, the beatniks were less athletic and they were more indoors. But both of these groups of people consider themselves nonconformists, sort of outliers in mainstream society had different sets of values, different wardrobes, different uh, uh, vocabulary. There were, there were subcultures that had a lot of parallels. So then when you get forward and the, and the, and the San Francisco beatniks sort of evolve into the, into the summer of love hippies, same thing happened down Los Angeles with the surfers evolving into some more Southern California version of the same thing. Right. It is interesting. Right. So they turned into the mamas and papas and kind of like 
folk, <laughs> neo folk, or something like that. I don't know what you call that. But uh, yeah, really a fascinating book. Really glad that uh, you were able to come on and share uh, your knowledge of this in the book. And uh, is there anything that you'd like to add before we wrap it up? We're at about 35 minutes. Um, it's a great interview, and, and I really enjoy talking with you. Uh, um, we've got the website and, and the, the Spotify playlist. Uh, you know, uh, I'm always uh, glad to interact with you and your audience. It's, uh, okay. Writing books is a, takes a long time. You spend a lot of time by yourself. You spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. And then when the book comes out, one of the most important and rewarding parts of the process is being able to dialogue with people about this work. Right? Really, I, I find out what the book was about in, in more ways than I knew. Like for me, it was just, you've got that place in time that kind of right before the 60s, this explosion of music. And the fact that it came out of all these people that were that young and really optimistic and that kind of sun bleached kind of attitude, I think where you really captured that in the book. And your website again is joelselvin.com. And I will put in the show notes, the Hollywood Eden Spotify playlist. And when people get this book, they can listen along like I did. And I was, uh, it was an education for me. I think I knew some of the stuff about Jan and Dee, but I got a much broader, uh, better picture of kind of what happened in LA at that time. So uh, Joel Selvin, thank you much for your, thank you so much for your time. William, good to be here. All right, stay there, stay there a second.